Welcome to Building Vesser, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of our process building a completely original franchise IP from scratch. I'm Victory Palmisano. I'm Ann Houck. And Mike's <laughs> lost it. I'm sorry. Oh my God. That was Mike McCard laughing. And if you're listening, and if you haven't reviewed the podcast yet, please click the stars and write us a review. Mike's voice is a little quiet today because he has been on Discord, those of you who know know, doing a lot of character creation, and he has been talking so much that he has lost a lot of his voice. Indeed. They've been fun sessions, though, for those of you who aren't on the wait list to be a part of our official community. It is really fun. It is already thriving. We're playing a lot of games, doing a lot of sessions together. But in the ones where you create your own player character for the game, Exile, it's a full TTRPG. It, it takes a while. First time character creation, you could expect it to take a couple hours. So I'll, I'll take 5 to 25 people through at a time creating characters. And I just have to talk the whole time. And even for someone who has sort of like the podcaster voice discipline, like I can, or like I used to tour and talk on stage, there's some threshold of continuous talking that I think is about at 90 minutes that after that, the vocal cords start to be like, you know what? No. They're in exile. They're in exile. Exactly. So I've noticed it, uh, Toward the end of the session yesterday, it was getting hard to talk. And then last night, it got worse. And then this morning, this is about all I got. So here we go. Here we go. Anything that you've been reading or watching or listening to in this last week that you'd like to share? Oh, yeah. So every once in a while, like in a break between watching something, we'll go back and try to find things that we should have already watched but just haven't. And so this past week, we've been watching through The Haunting of Hill House, which was very good. It's on Netflix. It's based off the book of the same name by Shirley Jackson. There's two movies called The Haunting that are also roughly based from the book, but the plots are very different. It was a little confusing going into it, expecting the plots to be similar, and they're just wildly different, but it was phenomenal. As someone who gets nerdy about like art direction in shows, the use of color as a storytelling thing or like fabric textures was just so enthralling the whole time. And it was it was one of the few things that I think at the end, both John and I were tearing up, which we norm we normally like not completely emotionless watching things, but but we are not normally ones who tear up watching something. Hmm. So, very good. I actually ended up in a very similar genre, and that is things I should have already seen but haven't. I don't watch a lot of TV because my family likes to watch things over and over, like shows, kind of for comfort, and I like to watch things I haven't seen before. And occasionally I can convince Jenny to go on a voyage with me into some new type of programming. And so I did that twice since we recorded last. I saw a movie I've wanted to see for years and years, which was Moneyball, 
which is a pretty old film about baseball, but it's kind of held up as a like a gold standard for screenwriting. And uh, watching it, uh, the reputation is well-deserved. And then we also watched a, a little show called Veep that we've never seen. <laughs> and so we watched the first two episodes, and I expected the sort of like super dry irony, which was excellent. What I didn't expect was like a stunningly accurate portrayal of how power is brokered in Washington, D.C., like it, the fidelity of that for a comedy kind of like they they did a better job of that than most dramas set in the same place do and it really made me want to watch like the entire show because a lot of people probably don't know this but I've done a not insignificant amount of lobbying on Capitol Hill and have been when I was watching the show, I was like, oh, I've been in that building. I've been in that building. I've been in that building. And so it was like kind of funny to see so many things like the vice president's office and like cheap office furniture huddled in the next room you have to go through to get into the like ornate chamber. Like it's just all perfectly weird and and so Washington, D.C. So... I really, really am enjoying uh, that show. I'm so uh, happy. I have been wanting you to watch Veep I, that's for why years. I did it. That's yeah. why I did it. And so I tend to like, it takes a long time, but there are people whose reputation I kind of trust absolutely on creative media. Victory is one of those people. But then people say, hey, have you seen Blank yet? And I'll say no for years because I haven't. And then finally I'm like, okay. I have the opening on my time inventory to sit down and because I don't like I will not watch film or television halfway like not there can be no other noise like all phones down like we are either watching this or I want the TV off and I'm just like Jenny and the girls they kind of want the TV as like a background thing or like they really want to be on their phone, but they just kind of also want this thing. And that's just not, that's just not how I roll. I I treat my home theater like a home theater. <laughs> <laughs> Many people don't treat the theater that way. Uh, it's been a real problem for me seeing films in theaters now because of that very dynamic. And it like one phone coming out of a pocket ahead of me is like a helicopter search spotlight in my face. It draws me out of the experience. And yeah, I wish there was like a, you know, there were theaters that were basically called like casual viewing and then serious viewing. The serious viewing is like there's a code of conduct and you'll get ejected. And I would love that. Cinephiles here, casual consumer here. Yes. Just put couches in the casual theater. Just like make it clear. It's just a big living room. Unless there's fancy, cool-looking, velvety couches in the other room for vibe setting, because that sounds fun, too. I'm into that. I, maybe. I mean, I like a high back chair with arms. I'm pretty, it might not surprise people with the tism, pretty particular about my movie-going experience. And so if I walk into a theater and it's not, like, quite right, I have been known to get a refund and not watch the show. 
I will say the comment on the high back chair is spoken like a tall person. That's true. I've noticed like there's a lot of couches that I find like painful to sit in that Jenny loves and it's because she doesn't like fold over the top of the couch like I do. She tries to lean back. Or you don't you don't have the back of the uh, next row of theaters hitting about right here. Well, that's the, the incline of the theater should fix that. So if they've if the theater has high back chairs and anyone has a viewing issue, in my mind, that's an accessibility issue in the design of the theater. Yeah, and they made poor architectural and design choices and didn't test their layout rigorously enough for something that's going to be used that well. So. I want high back chairs and stadium seating. So yeah, otherwise I can totally, I can totally see the high back chairs being an issue. But see, but if the, if there's low back chairs and I'm sitting there, you're still gonna get my bald spot just <laughs> <laughs> reflecting the light of the like projector. a horizon in front of the screen. Mike, you and I went to a movie a couple months ago. Now it was a secret that we can't say what it was. But we did not discuss your opinion on the architectural design of the theater. B plus. Stadium seating. High back chairs. I was quite comfortable. I'm also kind of like real picky about the calibration of the sound system and the projection as well. And I was frustrated in that early on some some of the projection was like a little bit out of focus and the lighting was also slightly uneven. It vignetted toward the edges. And at first I thought that was like a cin cinematic choice cinema cinemat cinematographic choice, C cinematography choice, cinematography attic. I don't know how you conjugate that, but it was just the projection. And then also the rear surrounds were too hot. Calibrating these things is actually not that hard. I don't understand why it's ever wrong in any theater. Like you just need a reference micro microphone and then it's like super easy. Fail on their part. It's a total fail. I could walk into any theater, very little prep, and calibrate the audio to specifications. Is that the vigilante superhero you're going to be? That is my vigilante superhero. Break into theaters at <laughs> when they're closed. With a, with a calibrated microphone and a laptop, hack into their sound system, play the audio, sample audio I need, do the analytics and heuristics, make the adjustments, and then leave. See, now I'm just picturing someone coming in with like the flashlight and you just in the corner like... <laughs> <laughs> with headphones on. Yeah. <laughs> what would they even do? they probably wouldn't know what to do because it's not like you're doing something wrong. Drop your laptop. I have on, a, on occasion been at a conference and the Wi-Fi has been real bad and I've hacked into the Wi-Fi system and made adjustments to improve everybody's bandwidth. It's happened more than once. Confessions. Yeah, I can't. It's just it's like the Wi-Fi is slow and the Wi-Fi doesn't need to be slow. It's almost always that they have the transmitter power too high. And so the access points are trying to shout over each other because the signal fields overlap too much. Yeah, your, your ability to hear is uh, detailed, is remarkable. And I do think it's the TISM. 
Yes, that does. Daniel, my husband, also on the spectrum. Two nights ago, the baby's noise machine was on, which is like rain, and it's all I can hear. And he came in looking like a hawk around. And I'm like, what? What's the matter? He's like, do you hear the buzzing? Do you hear the buzzing? And he's running around the whole house, and he could hear the battery in the smoke alarm was making a very faint buzzing. I was just like, wow. We have a light bulb that sometimes I walk up and unscrew because it's making a, a, a coil whine that bothers me. That is very painful for you too. No one else hears it. And I'm like, how do you, I can hear this two rooms away and I can't think. It's awful. Yeah. Well, what I have been listening to this week is dusting off some old records. Mm. Nice. Now, do you mean like records? Records. Or do you mean, wow, records. awesome. Yeah. The baby has learned how to press play on the record player. So she thinks it's the best trick in the whole world to turn it on. And this week, we've been listening to Irving Berlin Piano, a very old that composer. Not what I expected. The 40s, I think, maybe 30s. It's beautiful. And so we just dance around that, and it's sort of the the background to our lives right now. We'll we'll do like a a, a week at a time with a record. The renaissance of physical media just keeps going. Uh, Macy is buying CDs. Madison's already kind of a vinyl buff, but Macy's buying CDs because apparently CDs are kind of coming back in, which they should. I think, inarguably. For opposite reasons, vinyl records and CDs are the best mass market music formats that have ever existed. Both are far superior to the digital streaming we tend to do now in terms of sound quality and fidelity. Obviously inferior for portability and convenience, but yeah, I I really love people getting more into physical media again. I love it. Such a part of my childhood. And I have all my records from my parents. I I kept their record collection. So, this is the most hipster thing I'll ever say, but I like that physical media encourages you to take music more seriously. Exactly. Because there's an architecture to the entire experience that isn't possible without some level of attention, which is very different than saying, hey, digital assistants, play some chill vibes or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally agree. Well, we got some questions that we're going to get into. Are we ready for this? So ready. Okay. By the way, I I feel like I sound like just no energy. (laughs) I've I've enjoying recording the podcast. You sound no energy, but it sounds like it also sounds like you're in like a a smoking robe and an ascot, and you're sitting with your brandy, just kind of talking at a low vocal fry. I do like brandy. If normally you're coming in with like the radio voice, now you're coming in at like the late night smooth kind of ASMR vibes. I thought you were going to say smooth jazz. (laughs) I have a better ASMR smooth jazz voice than this. This is just, there's too much rasp here anyway. Sean asks, this could be good for the podcast. Do the people of Vesser have any guesses about how many titans there are in the world? D- 
do the Titans have any sort of organization or government? How often would Titans team up together or fight each other? I love that question. These are very good questions. Throughout history, since there has been civilization and recorded language, meticulous records have been kept about Titans for obvious reasons. They still are fairly well mythologized, and there's a lot of folklore around them. They certainly know the biggest ones really well. And there are just a, in terms of who the, it's a big planet, and they don't live on all of it, they just live on one continent. But they only have a historical understanding of a handful of kind of the mega titans, the biggest ones. Smaller titans come and go, though, on maybe not in an individual's life, but certainly in a few generations. Titans do die and new titans do rise. And so they would, depending on who you ask, there would be opinions that varied on how many titans there are in the world. And that would be between a few dozen and low hundreds of titans. It's not always clear from the perspective of Hesh how when there's a titan encounter Is it a single titan or is it multiple titans? Because some titans are pretty weird. Some titans, their form changes significantly over time. Do the titans have any form of organization or government? No, other than might makes right. (laughs) So the very biggest titans, the other titans flee in front of them, which relates to the final question here of how often would titans team up together or fight each other? They fight each other all the time. There's nothing a titan wants to eat more than a smaller titan. It's a lot of calories. It's a lot of imminent potential to be consumed in one sitting. The danger with eating other titans, though, is the danger that predators face eating other predators. Predators have weaponry and can hurt you. But for titans, imagine a world in which there were only predators, kind of more like the ocean than terrestrial ecosystems. In the ocean, kind of everything eats everything. And so that's the dynamic with Titans. Like, in order to get a good meal, you're going to have to risk some injury in the process. So they fight all the time. How often do they team up together? Not a lot. Not a lot. Even when they're intelligent, and not all Titans have any meaningful intelligence. They're not terribly prone to cooperation because every Titan is kind of a one-of-one. And how do you get close enough to converse, think about like the danger that happens when, you know, predatory arthropods mate. Like male spiders usually have to do a dance to be like, hey, I'm not prey. And it works sometimes to get close enough to a female. And then they still get eaten a lot during or after mating. So Titans have a similar problem of like getting close enough to communicate. It's very easy for things to escalate into conflict. On a slightly similar note with that, too, we've discussed the fact that smaller titans are, I mean, they're a huge threat to people, to tour effects, all of that, but they are essentially on the run from the larger titans. And so it wouldn't be unheard of that a smaller titan might use some of the defenses that have been put up by civilization to keep themselves safe. True. I mean, you you could have a titan with intellect figuring out like, oh, hey, the big guy can't get past this. So if I huddle up here, that's safe for me. 
And, and so you'd have instances of, you know, maybe a Titan not directly attacking some civilizations because their focus isn't on that right now. Their focus is on survival, where once the big Titan moves on to another prey or something else happens, then they notice like, oh, there's this nice little food source right here. This is like a huge job for the Exalted mm -hmm. is exploiting this dynamic because a small Titan, I guess, kind of the criteria we would choose for small would be if it was on Earth, a combined effort from all the world's militaries would have a chance. <laughs> That's a small Titan. There's no chance it's a Titan proper. And so some Titan attacks are a relatively small Titan fleeing a big Titan and in desperation trying to get through Hesh. But then other times the Exalted will try to wrangle other titans by baiting them closer during a titan attack to turn a titan attack into a titan battle where the titans retreat afterwards because they've been hurt from fighting each other so that's one tactic the exalted use to uh, save the day yeah and and with that it's also in their best interest with this titan battle to bait them away from cities because if a titan were to perish on, on one hand, that would create incredible resources for people to be able to use, explore, document. On the other, much like with the ocean, when you have a whale carcass on the bottom of the ocean floor, that is a giant feast waiting to bring other things in. Caitlin says, One more for today, LOL. I've been dreaming about Vesser stuff while stuck in meetings. How often would emergent folks be born or hatched into a nest? Is it uncommon to have multiple siblings become emergent, for example? Does the likelihood increase if it's in your past lineage, like having twins, or is it just totally random? So I, I forget the exact percentage, so Mike, I'll, I'll need to count on you for this, or the ball, ballpark percentage. We've actually been discussing pretty recently that creatures on Vesser, say, take humans, for example, aren't homo sapiens because we don't have the genetic potential to become emergent because it do it doesn't exist. So for humans, for the Torifex, for the Runja, this is something they are genetically capable of doing, which means absolutely if that has already presented itself in your family line, there is a higher potential for that. It's, it's kind of similar to when you have a child with red hair it's more likely to come about if you have, you know, other people in your family that also have that trait, but you can just have it pop up like as a surprise of we didn't know this was something, you know, that's stored in our family line, but it is and it's here. And you can imagine too that families that are more likely to present emergence might also have a different view on it because it's something that they are used to handling generationally. The Vahasha don't know what genetics are. And they don't do cohort studies. But if they did know those things, then they would uncover that if you track over the lifetime of babies born in a single year, between a quarter of a percent and 3% of those babies would express imminent ability at some point in their lives. And the reason for that variability is there is a genetic component to have imminent potential at all, 
and then it requires epigenetic activation for those genes to express. So there's a big environmental component, many environmental components that are unknown to the Vahasha that create, that make people emergent. So what that works out to is that in a given time, typically between three quarters of a percent and one and a half percent of the population is emergent. And I want to be really clear of the human and Runja population. These numbers are different for the Tor effects and humans and Runja do not know how many Tor effects there are. On, on top of that too, if, if say they were to pioneer the field of genetics, they would have a really hard time conducting a study, not only because they don't know how many Tor effects there are and exactly what the behaviors of them are, but because exile, which is one of the predominant civilizations that's still standing in the world as is, is imminent, su imminently suppressed. So there, there are people who grow up there who have imminent potential, and it might even manifest who don't know it because they are living in this suppression field. And, and so that would kind of skew any metrics as far as ascertaining how many, how many babies born are doing this. And it, it, I mean, it also gets harder too, because as we've mentioned, it can emerge at any time during, during a person's life. So you could be looking at early childhood or like well into seniority. Someone could be like, oh, I guess I can do magic now. Elijah Enneagamer Svoboda asks, hello. First, I want to emphasize how much joy I felt upon discovering this podcast and work. I've been a fan of your work for a long time now, and hearing your voice moved something in me, all the more when I learned that it was in the world of TTRPGs. As a long-term GM myself, I cannot wait until any sort of playtesting becomes available and have at least one or two groups who are excited as well to engage with your world and your system. Second, I wanted to ask about the action prong of Exile. You referenced three forms of play in one episode, exploration, fast-paced action, and social intrigue. As a GM with a group of players that have opposing desires, role-playing versus combat, can you speak more to what fast-paced action looks like in Vesser mechanically and or narratively? This is a more TTRPG question, so if you're unable to speak on it, I totally understand. I would also love to hear more about the day-to-day -day average life of those living in exile. Thank you so much for putting this work into the world and bringing yourself along with it. I can't wait to hear more. I have many thoughts. Anne, you want to go first, or should I? Sure. I think one important distinction to make here is when we say one of the main prongs is fast-paced action, and one of them is exploration and the other is social encounters, combat can occur in all three of those. That's, that's one of the main things we wanted to make sure that we were setting up when we're building the game, is combat occurs in all three and RP occurs in all three. So you could very much have a survival situation that turns into initiative and combat, or fast-paced action that turns into initiative and combat. It's just kind of the lens that you're coming at it with, so as far as balancing table desires, I, I think it's something that you can definitely make something that's combat heavy and mix in 
social combat and traditional, you know, D&D fighting things with swords combat. There's also the potential for terror encounters and the horror lens with there. But the one thing we wanted to make sure is that all of these held equal potential for role-playing as well. Now, that's something that's really nice with the system that we started out with is our game is built off of the basis set by Cypher. And, and Cypher, unlike D&D, doesn't really work on the idea of like, oh, I cast Fireball and that's my action. It, it goes much more into you describe what you do and there's mechanics that support it. There are, there are, of course, special abilities and things like that, but most of them are flexible that you can use them however your personal play style kind of fits with. So there, I mean, even just in combat, there's the opportunity to get a lot more flavorful with it, to start to narrate and role play through exactly what you're doing in a way that I, I think gets kind of limited by some TTRPG-based systems. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, same. The big thing is initiative doesn't even necessarily mean combat in our setting. Yeah. It just means things are going fast. And I would kind of add, combat's not usually to the death. Somebody's going to run away before they die, which is frankly more realistic, although less video gaming. Day-to-day average life of those living in exile, expeditioners train with each other, once they become candidates, they don't have keepers anymore. So it's just up to them to kind of hone their skills. And when they they think they're ready to request another trial of discernment to take an additional right. And so their days are spent training when they're not doing expeditions. And expeditions are how they make a living. Although some people, and after you've been expeditioning for a while, you get good enough at some other trade to do that instead. Like being crafting eminent tools or weapons. And that's for emergent people, for the non-emergent people living in exile. You have all these expeditioners bringing in resources and artifacts from Alatheuk. That stuff's got to get back to Hesh. And so it's it's a true port town. Things are being stored and packed because sailings are relatively rare. And they're oriented towards identifying what resources have the most priority to go back to Hesh. And their life rhythm is around that. And then, of course, you have people in the Augury who are in the Tower of Augury in exile, and their days are completely different and utterly mysterious. On that, too, I think I think it's cool they asked what a day like is in exile, because something that's very interesting to me personally about the city of exile is unlike Hesh, which never fe- like never fell. Exile is currently built on the ruins of previous settlements and so you have people going about their everyday life in in this kind of smorgasbord of architecture set up levels of civilization for people in the discord who have gotten to play garden of souk they've realized that a lot of the encounters and stuff or all of the encounters in there are set within technically the settlement of exile there's ruins, there's flooded caves, there's there's lots of different places that are technically in exile that very much feel sort of wild and adventure And so with everyone who, who's living in this place, it's partially, you know, the normal town you would think of. There's a thriving 
market economy, there's agriculture, there's things like that, but they're also existing on the borders of the wild and, and for a large majority of the area that is within the borders, it, it is very wild. And so you've got people who, as, as opposed to Hesh, where things are very civilized, very sort of refined, they're dealing with a lot more natural things going on, a lot, a lot higher frequency of creatures, titans, obviously, but their, their lives are much more interruptible by where they're at. Well, that does it for our questions. Any other thoughts? Those are good questions. Those are really good questions. Excellent questions. I think that's been really fun getting to hear questions here and also on the Discord is what people are attracted to in the world, like where, where they gravitate towards. It's been really fun. And on that note, if, if there's anything else you're curious about, whether it's a small detail in the world, in the game, for upcoming media, please let us know. You can drop a comment on social, if you're on Discord, there's a channel specifically for that. And then if you would like to email Mike directly your questions, you can email mike at vesser.com. That's mike at v-e-s-s-e-r.com. All right, join us next week for more Building Vesser. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.